Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. We're nearing the end of our series discussing the Oscar nominees, and today's category is cinematography. My guest for this segment is David Tutman, also known as Tut. Tut, you started in the camera department, worked your way up as an operator, became a cinematographer, and you're currently making the transition to directing. You've been on the show before, and it's great to have you back. It's nice to be here, Skid. How are you doing? Not bad. Not bad nice. at all. So it goes without question that cinematography is a key aspect of how a film comes together. But unlike a lot of other categories where there's some discussion about what the Academy is actually recognizing, there's not that much debate that the one person they name in this category is the cinematographer. And it's that cinematographer's vision that we're capturing on screen, but it is a large team of folks that bring this together. Let's talk some about the team that is involved in the cinematography decisions. Sure. Well, first of all, the, in, in a movie, particularly in a feature film, I feel like the first and foremost person who has input into the look of the movie is the director. Movies, as opposed to TV, where I've made most of my uh, living, um, movies are definitely more of a director's medium than television. And with that, um, and many of the cinematographers nominated in this year have discussed the fact that for many months prior to shooting these movies, they discussed things with the director, uh, got seeds of thought planted, and then came up with ideas to help match the director's vision. And that the director's vision is always in their head, the primary important piece of visual storytelling that they're trying to help uh, come to fruition. You will often see that the director will bring a cinematographer from film to film. Uh, obviously, they develop that working relationship, develop a certain language of style. Uh, cinematographers have a very particular set of skills. Um, uh, there's the aesthetic side of it, which involves a lot of different facets. Of course, there's uh, shot design and framing. Uh, there's lighting. Uh, there's collaboration with uh, the production designer. Uh, makeup artists, costumer, all in, in terms of uh, finding a goal of a proper palette for their presentation. So that cinematography um, wades into a lot of different pools at different times. And uh, those conversations uh, with each department and each separate aesthetic piece of the puzzle are crucial, as well as conversations with the editor and the colorist. Um, editors, are, uh, particularly there are a couple of movies on, on the list this year where editors were very prominent within the shooting of the movie. All right, so let's turn our attention to the nominees and apologies in advance if I mess up any of these names. First up, we have Rodrigo Prieto is nominated for The Irishman. Yeah, um, this is this is a movie indeed. Rodrigo Prieto has uh, worked with Marty before. Uh, I say Marty because I've I've had a couple of days with him, and that's how he prefers uh, to be named. A lovely experience, but they have a history together, and I think a common language and an understanding of of where they want these movies, at least in terms of lighting and palette to be. What did you do with Marty when you said you worked with him for a couple of days? I did some strange little shoots uh, with Fran Lebowitz as the lead person. They were basically documentaries in a talk show with Fran. And um, I knew Fran before. She had been a judge on Law and & Order. and We had a really lovely relationship there. And so, uh, so with that, uh, I think I felt very comfortable there and was made to feel very comfortable by everyone. And uh, 
you wear headsets on some of Marty's shoots and uh, having Marty's uh, voice in your head complimenting your shots means <laughs> the world to a filmmaker. I would say. <laughs> uh, well, at small world aside, but yes, yeah, sorry, back to the Irishman. Yeah, feels to me like this movie, um, with their with the familiarity with each other and um, his understanding of how Marty works, like we talked about before, a lot of what drives a cinematographer uh, to. In, within his or her work is uh, the, the needs and desires of the director visually and, uh, and also in terms of the rhythm of shooting a project. For this movie, what really drove the bus, it feels like, is the VFX. The, uh, the cast uh, had to look uh, 40 years younger at her point and then aged into present day or into at least the 70s. So there were four decades through and then to the present, and they created four different looks for that. And within that, they had to work very closely with the visual effects department because the aging was digitally done and uh, Marty did not want actors to wear head masks or any sort of sensors. He didn't want to impede his actors because I think, as is clear from his work, the process with actors for Marty is, is the penultimate in importance. With that, they created a three-camera rig with the, the major camera, the camera that actually depicted the actors in the middle of the array and then on each side, they put a smaller camera, which was infrared sensitive and projected infrared light through those cameras to pick up movements and were able to create proper uh, three-dimensional aging uh, using that information, assembling it with computers. They, they also did photographs of the light arrays and then the computers could incorporate that into the work. So it's an unusually technical movie, which it doesn't appear to be, but it's an unusually technical movie. And that really was a great determinant of how Mr. Prieto went about his work. With that, Marty also, because of the actors, wanted to cross-shoot the movie often, which means covering both actors at the same time. And that limits a cinematographer's options in terms of where lights go. You never can put the light in the ultimate place you would for one direction of shooting when you're shooting in two opposite directions. So he had a lot of technical challenges thrown his way in the production of this movie. On the second point of well, wanting to, to cross shoot, I've seen sometimes in television when you're in a hurry, that makes a lot of sense. But why on a film as large as this, in which clearly, I mean, they're just printing money for it, right? Uh, why why well, do you think there's a drive to do it that way on something like this? Well, I, uh, I ultimately think that that was, uh, again, Marty, uh, Martin Scorsese's main concern. It's a dialogue heavy movie in many ways. And I think it was about giving the actors a chance to uh, interact and capture moments opposite each other without going through things that many more times, keeping it fresh, uh, giving uh, actors a chance to really, to act off of someone who's on camera as well, that there's a juice to that. Without a doubt, there are a lot of actors, and I don't, I'm not saying any of the actors in The Irishman are that way, but many actors give their all in off-camera, but some do not. Mm. And uh, there's a way in which when all the actors are on camera or both actors are on camera face-to-face, -face, it, it brings an intensity and a spontaneity, and you get to capture that. And everything matches. Uh, hand movements match, where the glasses in your hand matches. All, all these different things that, uh, that make for a more seamless experience for the viewer, I would think. Speaking of that seamless experience, now regular listeners will know that this topic of the de-aging has come up several times, most obviously when we were talking about visual effects for which the Irishman has been nominated, and also on uh, hair makeup where uh, the Irishman is not nominated, but there is this question about doing the work of hair makeup with these cameras. 
I'd say, honestly, a lot of the folks that I've surveyed, a general consensus is that the digital de-aging is not well received. In fact, there's a, there's a, a falseness around the um, actors in this that, you know, it varies from distracting to uh, covering. But from a cinematography point of view, it's the first time I've heard that the cinematography itself was structured around this effort. And I was wondering if you could say more about that, like how you think it was coming together or what they gave up to accomplish this. As a cinematographer myself, when faced with VFX shots, I always want the VFX technical side to know that I am aware of their needs in their assemblage. If it doesn't work for them, it's not going to work. So in a movie such as this, when the, when the director, especially a director as important and high-powered as Martin Scorsese comes to and says, this is the story and this is, and the aging is a big part of the story, really. And this is how we're going to do it. You go about finding those solutions. And with that, I, I'm not saying that uh, Rodrigo Prieto gave up his aesthetic or his, his own personal ideas, but I think we as cinematographers are always at the mercy of our technology. We have to embrace the needs of it and we have to uh, embrace the limitations of it and understand what we can do to supersede the limitations. Uh, a lot of trickery is involved in that necessarily. But I think that every movie comes with a different story and a different need. And, and there are a couple of different movies in, in our list where the cinematographer does basically subscribe to the needs of the storytelling. And then their own aesthetic comes through within that telling of the tale. Let's move on to the next one on our list. Lauren Cher has been nominated for Joker. Joker. Well, first and foremost, I'm a sucker for the orange-green uh, New York City urban palette of the 70s and 80s. I've always enjoyed that. I've worked on shows which have had more monochromatic approaches. And if you're dealing with real life and you're dealing with gritty urban realism, uh, the world is full of different colors. And uh, I think Joker handled that saturation and that difference in color, that warm of sodium vapor lights, the greens of fluorescence, most beautifully. It's old school New York looking. It harkens back to movies, you know, like Taxi Driver to me and uh, of movies in the highlight of New York filmmaking in the 70s, the grittiness of it. I love the fact that it's, it's such a visual subversion of the typical comic book movie because I'm over the comic book movies personally. I've never been a fan. And, and uh, I know so many of my crewmates in the, you know, are, are enthralled with and fascinated, you know, and I just can't get there. I don't know. It, and uh, it's, uh, so for me, this movie really stood out uh, because of its willingness to break against genre. And, uh, and I was very impressed with that. They shot with a large format camera um, so as to limit depth of field. Since it's a period piece, it, it enabled them to shoot in a modern city. They, they changed lamppost heads on all the lights. They had a city affiliated service do that for them. Uh, they used some old school lights. It's a beautiful, low key, naturalistic looking movie. Camera moves are subtle. I felt like every shot counted which most of these movies they did, um, but this one, 1917 as well. Very, the, the shots, the, the way in which shots were built there was fascinating, but this is about Joker. We'll get and, to 1917. Uh, yeah, yeah. We won't lose that point, but uh, yeah. But, uh, and I think a lot, of, um, a lot of the way in which this movie was shot, in all honesty, was to make room for Joaquin Phoenix to do 
the things he did. It was a highly improvisational performance. There was an interview I, I uh, perused with the focus puller who spoke about the fact that like they would do a committed take one where everything was by the book and you would just focus on said thing. And then take two, they felt they were given a chance to be more flexible. And if something drew their mind, they could pull to it. And the operator and, and the focus puller were allowed to sort of reach and stretch for things. And then take three, you never knew. But it was all about protecting Joaquin Phoenix's performance while also trying to get that which was first and foremost on the page to begin with. But it was a, there were ways in which it was a very experimental movie in terms of following performance, it seems to me. You know, that's an interesting challenge with a camera operator and a focus puller where it is going to be improvisational. Who makes the call then about where the camera is going to focus, what they're going to look at, and how do they communicate that to each other silently in the course of actually filming a scene? Well, that's, that's always interesting. And I think that's, uh, that's about teamwork and knowing each other well and having, and also really importantly, having the faith to go with your gut and knowing that you're not going to get harped on for it. If you're looking over your shoulder, you can't see what's ahead of you. And I think that there has to be a culture on the set and between those two people, which allows for that reach and that taking of a chance. And within that, the focus puller who was discussing it was talking about once in a while in take two, he'd see something off in the side of frame and reach for it. And then the operator would see the change in focus and make his way over to it. Um, occasionally, the operator would frame in a certain way, and that would lead the focus puller to see where he was going and pull it in. And then, of course, there's the strategy. And then, you know, maybe after take one, the operator turns to the focus puller and says, it'd be really cool if you pulled in here, or the director or cinematographer says the same thing, or the focus puller goes with his gut, or the focus puller says, hey, I saw this, can I do it? Because sometimes a cinematographer limits your choices because it's not prepared lighting-wise or something. So these are things, um, it sounds like they also went from, um, as opposed to ganging up a white and tight camera, they often took a camera around to a very radically different side, so as to get something very different. Larry Scher was operating one of the cameras, and uh, so he and his operator had to be very much in touch in communication in terms of how the lighting was working and what, they, what was seen by each of them and keeping out of each other's shots because they did play, a, it sounds like they played an interesting and dangerous game on that movie. Now, from what you said, Tut, it sounds like you really enjoyed the movie. Was that strictly in the sense of just being immersed in the challenge of the cinematography? Or did you enjoy the movie overall? And I guess the reason I ask is because people are, are strongly split on this film. Yeah, I'm, I tend to try not to think about lighting very much when I first view a movie. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that I've become a lot less annoying when watching movies earlier <laughs> on in my career. I used to discuss things with myself a lot more. And, and now I kind of sit back and enjoy the show. So firstly, I enjoyed the movie. I enjoyed the statement and exploration of mental illness within the movie. And I thought there, and to me more than anything, I am a performance guy, even though I love lighting. You have to have a good script and you have to have good performances in order to make a good movie. The beauty of lighting in a way, lights can go in an infinite number of places. So you, I want to give room within that, not to pass judgment on that and let the story be told. And, and when the lighting complements the story and is consistent with the mood and tenor and helps express that and gets people sucked in and involved, then a cinematographer's done their job. They're not there to be the star of the show, if, in my head. Well, I think it's an interesting question on this that 
I don't think I liked where the movie went overall. But mm-hmm. what's come up time and time again is that these various departments who contributed to the director's vision, to Todd Phillips' vision in this case, they all brought their A game. And so yeah. I think if, if folks are enjoying the movie, all of these elements are pulling in the right direction. I think people like it a lot. But I think if someone like me who is not enjoying the movie, there's still the pull of all these elements being done as effectively as they are. And I think that might be philosophically why um, people feel so strongly in different directions on this. A movie that doesn't deliver as well, you're just more, eh, I didn't like it or, or you know, did like it. But a movie where, again, it seems like everyone's brought their A game to, to delivering this vision if you don't actually agree with where you're going, that can actually be a little uncomfortable. So this is yeah, going to be very I, interesting to see which I, of these, so I many nominations, it'll be interesting to see which of these it takes home. I, it seems to me, even though people had a strong negative reaction to the movie often enough, it really makes me feel as if the movie worked. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I, I think it, that I think that putting people in an uncomfortable place in a way was part of the telling of this tale. It's For, for all that it's about a guy who puts on clown makeup, it's a, it's a look in the mirror movie in certain ways to me in terms of the allure of celebrity uh, versus um, are helping people who don't have that potential. I, I, I thought it was really beautifully intelligently told, plus um, perhaps the best stabbing murder, spoiler alert, but the best stabbing murder I've seen in a long time. <laughs> and that's not easy to do. And uh, <laughs> it's not easy to impress me with murders. I've done a lot of them over the years. So. <laughs> not personally, yeah. on, on, on celluloid or video. I'm glad you to clarify on that on, on both fronts. But yeah, the scene you're talking about, and, and we did warn folks that there could be spoilers as this conversation wanders. Um, uh, what was it about that that you thought was particularly challenging? It came very suddenly. Editorially, it was superb, aside from anything. And, and that, that's another thing about cinematography. Cinematographers, all camera people, need to account for the edit. If you're not thinking about the cut, you're not doing your job. You have to provide the pieces, whether it's about how you frame it, whether it's about lighting consistency, whether it's about knowing um, when you can, like another movie we're gonna talk about later had a lot of problems with um, shooting a scene that took place in 10 minutes over the course of an entire day and the sun shifting, but, but the understanding of how to put things in the right place to let that illusion of continuous time be, pre- you know, be part of the storytelling. These are all, pieces of understanding the cut and the editorial process. And, and one of the things about that, the suddenness of it, the explosiveness of it, and then the tender turn at the end of it almost was just fascinating to me and uh, really well done. Let's talk about our next nominee, Yaren Blaschke, and I may be mispronouncing that name, but uh, is nominated for The Lighthouse. Uh, fascinating. This is the one I saw most recently, so it's freshest in my head. Aside from anything, just uh, just phenomenal. I have to say, first of all, 34-day shoot in Nova Scotia. In the weather was uh, was real for the most part in that movie. Oh, wow. uh, so aside from anything, just the elements that were combated in the making of that film. I, I, I'm I'm fascinated by that. The movie was shot on film, black and white, 200 ASA stock. So it's far slower than our videotape. Our, our, our HD cam, we're not doing videotape anymore, our HD cameras. And with that, uh, Yaren Blaschke shot for Mr. Eggers. He also shot The Witch. They have a, they've shot four movies together over the years as well. And The Witch, he used about 15 to 20 times less light than in shooting this very dark movie, The Lighthouse. Um, he said that from what I read, the set was so bright 
There was so much light on this very crushed, single source looking movie that the actors couldn't see each other sometimes and that that was uncomfortable for them. I've had that situation where where an actor can't see his fellow actor and it's it's a tricky, potentially tricky political situation. Sometimes you can do something about it and add something so that they, or and sometimes you can't, but with two incredible actors like uh, Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe, I guess, you know, they had to overcome a lot of shit to make this movie, there's no <laughs> doubt. They used old Baltar lenses, two of them. My understanding is um, they were tricky to work with. Um, they contributed a lot to the crushed contrast and flariness of the movie. And uh, the whites bloom so well and the blacks crush so incredibly and that's, a big part of that is lenses. But the focus puller, a guy named Eddie McGinnis, is quoted as saying, I'm trying to jam together three fucking eras of fucking camera equipment. <laughs> I can only imagine. In the pouring rain, uh, with rain deflectors, and uh, like all sorts of crazy stuff going on. So uh, really admirably done technically, aside from anything. The, sh- the film was shot in a very unusual aspect ratio in today's world of 1 to 1.9, um, which is a silent movie aspect ratio. And uh, the narrowing of frame to me, uh, aside from anything, contributes to the claustrophobic sense that one has in this movie. Um, the sets were designed to work with that aspect ratio. They knew the two lenses they were planning to use for the movie, and they constructed their table to a width where the two shot would work within the confines of the set they built. They did build sets. The walls did pull, which is really important to think about. But uh, often enough, they opted not to because of the... As I, I understand that. Uh, they opted not to for the realism of the room, the actors. And there are, times, um, there are times to pull things, and they had that option, and they clearly used it on occasion. But this was not a movie of grand swooping camera moves for the most part. Um, so they, didn't have, they weren't fancy with the camera that way. They were very respectful and solemn to me with the camera and celebrated their sets. And, and with that strange construction, the way in which the lighthouse towers above these small characters in this narrow frame, and then the, the closeness of the walls and the set within the you know, their house and within the lighthouse, really fascinating. Are you surprised that this movie is not getting more attention in other areas? In some ways, the cinematography and what you talked about might overwhelm some of the other elements. Like, because the cinematography is so obvious that a lot of work has gone into that. As you said, measuring the aspect ratios and even all these aspects about camera selection and lens selection, film selection, of which I was not aware. But certainly I'm left feeling, wow, that all this attention on the cinematography. I wonder if other aspects of the film are getting lost in the shadow of that. Well, it's interesting because in, in, again, doing a little reading on the making of this movie, they started talking about this movie while they were making The Witch. And uh, Bob Edgar's uh, put some thoughts into uh, Yaron's mind about what he was looking for, and they were tonal notes. I think it was a movie about relationships and about immortality and about symbiosis. And within that, uh, the attraction of the time era was about the quintessence of that time era with lighthouses. So they, I think everything was selected in order to make this milieu, which was about these two men swirling. It could have taken place almost anywhere in a certain way. And they grabbed hold of language used within, you know, that he found within journals 
in a lighthouse when they were scouting. They, uh, they kept, he kept writing as he went, as he found all this new material. And uh, to me, uh, the mission of this movie was reflected within the cinematography. I, don't, I didn't feel like it governed it. I think it was really honoring the respects and desires of the director here. The, you know, to me, the, there were amazing sacrifices or decisions made. I wouldn't even say sacrifices, but uh, so much detail in the sets are lost. But that would be what happened in a place where one lantern was lighting a room, you know. And uh, but with that, they were using fifteen lights to make that effect happen. It, it's a really fascinating discrepancy in thinking the 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 technical needs versus the actual presentation of the movie and uh, that it came out the way it did to me it's it's a fascinating end, end result i did okay. remember thinking when i left that clearly uh eggers was able to make the movie exactly that he wanted yeah like that there is yeah. like there's so much precision in it in the end it didn't uh appeal to me where mm -hmm. we went with it to quite the same level but um all this respect for uh, just to ignore everything and just say, no, we have a singular vision that all of us are going to unite around and all of these different, whether from the actors and the director, and I think all of it just feels like it really comes together to deliver, I think exactly what they wanted to deliver. Like, I don't think there's I any question about too. another, I don't think there's gonna be a director's cut of this no, film, it would be I pointless. I think we saw it, yeah. yeah exactly. Totally. Another question, Tut, on a movie like this, which is clearly, going to be an enormous challenge. You talked about the focus puller and trying to match up all this equipment is just, you know, an anecdotal story. Is this the kind of opportunity that most folks who work in this space would jump at? Or is this actually intimidating to try and recreate this to the kind of detail and this much precision? That That's a lot and doesn't leave a lot of room for error or other issues on the day. Like it could be a real, this could be a real pain in the ass. This movie strikes me as a work of love. It's a 34-day shoot. I would never have thought that until I read it because just looking at it, the level of difficulty with the elements, the nature of the lighting, it felt like it took a much longer time to make. But with that too, there are not a lot of people who get licensed to make movies like this. I think that's part of your question in a way. Again, comic book movies. We see so many cookie cutter movies at this point. And for me, seeing something that so, um, so committedly steps out of the box and tells a story. And, and oh, here, what I was want to say before, uh, the thought that there were pieces of this movie as someone who really values logic within storytelling and, and, and understandable events, although movies with un, lack, ununderstandable events are fascinating too. This movie, the time ellipsis is very confusing to me. I was, after we finished the movie, I asked uh, my wife and son who watched it with me, did you know when this happened and when this was vis-a-vis, -vis? and they were like, no, like at the end, it's, there, there were things which were unclear. And I think there was a point where they, they allowed themselves to go with the, the power of this swirl amongst these two, in a way as immortal men, immortal characters. I think they let that be the ride and they let the magic of it govern some things. They let, and, uh, and that doesn't always happen. So many movies are so buttoned up at this point, everything needs to be explained to the audience type of thing. And, and this one left a lot 
to the audience in certain ways to, to assemble, in certain ways. In other ways, it was crystal clear. So, Let's use that as a segue into our next film, which is that in the manner of how it manages time is on the complete opposite, where it's practically done in real time. And that, of course, is talking about Roger Deakins and his nomination for 1917. Yeah, fascinating in a completely different way. The scope of this movie, the two guys in a lighthouse versus World War One, <laughs> <laughs> and and a very um, and a and a wonderfully as wonderful as war can be rendered, wonderfully rendered World War One in many ways. Things I learned about this movie: this movie has incredibly long takes with huge scope. They wanted it to appear as if it was a one-take film, and within that, I. I was able to see where the cuts are, and I, I think most viewers can. Uh, but within that, the spirit of continuity within it was astoundingly well executed. And in order to do that, unusually so, the um, Sam Mendes and Roger Deakins and the art department and the actors all got together and prepped this movie together for months in advance. And they actually walked the scenes in the locations that they were going to do them, script in hand, and did the walk and talks and did the moves before they dug any trenches in order to make sure that they had the proper length of run for their cameras to get the stretches and the movements they needed in order to seamlessly then tie them together from end to, you know, tail to head again. And it's also a movie which um, had, when I was talking about editors, editors' presence in a film, this movie, Lee Smith, who I actually uh, worked with years ago on Reversal of Fortune, who saved that movie, uh, we thought. Um, Lee was the editor and Lee was there with them while they shot the movie to make sure that those transitions from tail of one shot to head of the other cut the way they were hoping. And that's one of the reasons in so many ways that, I mean, you can, you can do these things uh, with film cameras as well at this point, but I think that this movie was greatly aided by shooting digitally in terms of the weight of cameras, in terms of being able to see things at the moment and adjust them, you know, constantly monitoring exposures and, and, and stuff like that for the cinematographer. So it seemed to me that uh, this, many of our movies were shot on film this year that were nominated, but, uh, but this one is a beautiful, beautiful example of how fantastically cinematic HD shooting can be. I love all of it. I'm, you know, the, the, we have movies in this nomination where directors said, I'll never shoot HD, and they're, uh, they, they reject it with all their heart, and I respect that. But at the same time, I think a great story can be told with any camera. You have to understand what the camera can do, and you have to understand uh, the results you'll get and how to celebrate them and make the right choices. But uh, this is a movie where clearly a digital camera was the right choice to make. I think that goes back to some of our conversation about visual effects earlier and it applies to the cameras as well. I remember I was working in Hollywood when digital cameras were becoming more and more prevalent, the move from film. And there was a debate about whether the digital camera at the time could recreate what film was able to do. But it seemed to be less about the technology because the digital technology continues to catch up and to provide new opportunities and, and just uh, levels of, uh, uh, granularity and everything, but more about understanding how it's going to work. And I think yeah. it took the cinematographer's time 
um, and some did and some didn't adapt to what these new tools could do because without that understanding and again the same visual effects you're largely at the mercy of the folks who do understand the technology and I think originally with the video cameras you have some video technicians who are maybe setting things like the way we set TVs or you know setting color levels and things that they're losing some of the creativity that cinematographers knew how to do before but the cinematographers had not yet in all cases, understood what was happening. I think that was some of the resistance. But of course, I was outside of it and just trying to get people in the right place at the right time. You must have seen that as well, Todd. And what was, do you think that's an accurate uh, description of the challenges with this new technology or have I misstated it? Oh, I think there are advantages to each at this point, especially. I think for the past 15 years, let's say, it's very possible to make a beautiful cinematic image with a with a video camera. It's improved greatly. I feel as if one has to understand that there's a difference in process in certain ways only. For me, as a, as a film shooter, I rarely metered things as I lit. I lit to eye and then use my meter to determine the stop and then you know monitor my levels and my contrast levels so that I could match them when I turned around so that my highlights were similar and and my downside was similar and uh, you know it's just another objective mark but with that i still need to light to eye with video i still do but the things you, one has to really keep an eye on are different uh, in film i would let the highlights go where they would and you worried about the the darker side of your exposure and making sure you protected the information you cared to see or not see there in HD cinematography, I'm much more concerned with the highlights. The whites are the things that often sing. And uh, I mean, and the exposure latitudes of cameras have become much better. But, uh, but I do find that uh, it's really important, um, as opposed to a light meter, um, I now use a scope. I, you know, I'm now, I'm now looking at a, at a graph on my monitor or on a device in order to check levels there. Uh, and with that, if you understand that and you understand uh, what you need to do in terms of a committing to an interesting image and making it your own, but also where to put it out, especially like in TV as opposed to movies politically so that everybody's happy with the end results while still putting your mark on it. It's just a different approach. You know, there's still a lot of magic and, and not everyone knows where the lights go. That's an important thing. And, and you still need to understand the purpose of 20 to 30 people who you're supervising um, and the jobs they do and how to smoothly execute with them. So there's still, there's still an essential need for cinematographers, even though everybody can see things on the set now. That's mm. a whole other conversation. <laughs> well, let's bring it back to 1917. What yeah. other scenes or setups or other aspects of the cinematography really struck you as making it uh, worthy of this nomination? Well, I'm always a Roger Deakins fan. Roger's movies are always beautiful and always, to me, visually truthful. I think he's a beautiful, natural cinematographer. Even when he's doing the most extreme of Bond movies, uh, there's a very pleasant patina and very natural approach to it uh, that, that, for me as an audience member and as a cinematographer, I really appreciate. The scene for me, which really was a highlight to me was the scene at night where he's running through the ruined city and the flares are going off. And the beauty of those flares and the acceptance of the light falling where it does as th those are actually happening. And that's the other beauty of HD is that you don't need to necessarily supplement 
you can shoot an incredibly low light scene and come up with something very sculpted and artful lighting wise while um, embracing that which is before you naturally and letting that be your base level rather than having to set your own. And, and to me, Roger, this is a natural light movie for the most part. Um, I've no doubt there are places where there were stashed lights here and there because these shots were rehearsed and he knew wh what was being seen and what wasn't. But within that, um, the appearance of natural spontaneous light and present, you know, and, and atmosphere um, drove this movie. Uh, he spoke about the nightmare of shooting this movie, actually. It was a very difficult movie to shoot because with the matching cuts, and it's all supposed to be a sense of continuous time, uh, he was looked upon, as we cinematographers are, to say when shooting is acceptable or not. And I work in TV mostly, and the sun's out, okay, shoot. Cloudy, okay, shoot. And you have to come up with a, with a strategy as to how to get those things to cut. The pressure for Roger Deakins on this shoot was about whether we can shoot because they weren't looking for acceptable cutability. They were looking for really detailed, fine, thorough visual storytelling. That meant the lighting had to match. So he waited for the proper overcast. And he spoke about how we would, you know, doing a two or three minute take and just praying that that cloud didn't clear before it ended. And I've been in those shoes, and that's a that's a tricky place to be. And and this too, this movie, for all that it's um, it's such a smooth movie to me visually. It embraced so many incredible technologies in the making of it, which I, I don't think people thought about when looking at it. I uh, friends of ours were watching it today with us, and uh, and they were talking about how do you think they did that? And it's hard to know because uh, they totally used cranes. They had Russian arms driving around. They had an amazing device called a stable eye, which is a gimbaling system. And, and they would do transfers of it off of cranes. And then, you know, two grips would take it and carry it. And Roger would be operating a remote from a, a, like 100 meters away. Wow. Um, you know, and uh, I mean, just amazing stuff going on uh, amidst the tension of these lighting decisions and the timing. I mean, that scene where he's running down the side of the trench and the bombs are going off. And, uh, you know, all these, these amazing coordinations of, of actors and backgrounds. As an assistant director, I think you, you find that movie rather darn impressive. The choice of camera angles, the, the, you know, the, the flawless following and leading of these two characters and taking in a room in one shot you know, seeing people when it's pertinent and then getting off of them to see other people. All that stuff is, was months in the making and very thoughtful, and, and I respected it a lot. For me, the films that really moved me more this year were more subversive, and I, I think that's because I think uh, the world at large needs some shaking up. And uh, I liked the movies which had a, a, a more um, dysfunctional tone to them, because I think in this day and age, celebrating the dysfunction within ourselves, we, we're not understanding each other well enough. And I thought those movies were important for that reason. You know, it's interesting what you mentioned. Yes, um, in fact, we discussed this film at length when we reviewed the uh, DGA nominees uh, last week. What was interesting for me is I saw an early screening of this and had seen nothing but perhaps a single preview. And so was not familiar with uh, the challenges or the conceit of the film about the continuous time and the one take uh, approach. And in fact, afterwards, when someone asked me about it, I didn't recall that as being the dominant. Uh, yeah, afterwards, it wasn't what I took away from the film because the story I think is immersive and on me at least, not knowing that those aspects were there 
in the beginning, I wasn't watching for them and they were effective on me in taking me with the story that I didn't notice them on their own. What I think is to the film's credit. And that's right. It, it tells you it worked. I was, I didn't think about that very much either on first viewing. I was really thinking about the long shots and, and the mode of travel and the incredible steady cam and focus pulling work. And, uh, and again, the stable eye and they used a Trinity a lot so that they could get into all sorts of different positions. And sorry, you said, what's a Trinity? A Trinity is a, is well, it's made by Ari, and it's a next generation of stabilized camera support. It basically can, uh, as you move it, you can. It, it's basically on a on a pivoting bar, hmm. so that you can dip it down, and the camera level, the horizon of the camera can stay the same, even as you change. It's the relationship of the support staff to the actual camera, it's, a, it's basically a gimbaled head as well. And so you can do things with it, like swing it around and the camera will stay in one place, or you can swing the pole down and the camera will stay level to the subject you're looking at and, and keep it structured. And, uh, you know, it's f- phenomenal advances in, in camera movement in the last five years alone. You know, Movi, Stabileye, this Trinity, and the Trinity can handle a rather heavy camera. That's one of the things which is so impressive about it, the, other than the fact that it's poor steady cam operator, the, the weight of cameras already is enough. It's a, you know, so this is an even heavier rig. One of the things which I was so impressed with in listen, reading about this movie was um, they built a rig where the steady cam operators, the rig itself was pointed behind him and he had his monitor rigged in front of him. Uh, it was rigged in such a way that he could run ahead of the subjects so that he could run at running speed. And you had, you know, it wasn't about a vehicle assessing the distance, it was two human beings running. And he would do the shot, you know, not with his eyeballs lined up with the subjects at all, just looking at a monitor. And there's a shot particularly where he's running and they hinge him into an alleyway. And you can see that's one of the few slightly rugged moments in the movie, but now I understand why, because this guy was in such an unorthodox relationship with his rig, it's just fantastic. And so it sounds like a movie like this, in the way they delivered it, wouldn't have been possible, as you said, five years ago. The advances no. really are a big part of what they're able to capture. I, I would also like to do a little shout out with 1917 to Andy Harris, uh, who's been Roger Deakins' focus puller for decades now. Andy and I uh, grew up together as camera assistants years ago, and uh, we, w- we both were second assistants for the same amazing focus puller. And uh, Eric Swanick, and uh, I haven't seen Andy in a while, but he's a lovely guy, and uh, and his work with Roger has been decades long impeccable, and I'm, I congratulate him on that. Well, this might be a favorite in the category for a lot of folks, but let's turn our attention to the last film under cinematography, and that's Robert Richardson's nominee for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Robert Richardson, quite a quite an interesting character, from what I hear. A Panavision uh, anamorphically shot uh, on film uh, using the new T-series lenses, which are actually video, were made for, uh, for HD shooting, but they uh, reworked them so they would work with their film cameras. And uh, Robert Richardson's been for decades fond of their C and E series anamorphics and, and used those as well. They also used a classic Cook 5 to 1 zoom lens. So to me, the lens choices on this were one of the most interesting uh, parts. The movie, to me, celebrates old-school saturation and contrast. It's very much uh, trying its best uh, to honor the look of the era within which it was shot. There was a tremendous amount of work done with wardrobe and makeup and set design to achieve this, it looks like to me. Uh, it was a single-camera shoot, 
So it's another movie where, like all of Tarantino's movies, it feels like every shot counts. Although um, his movies are paced in such a way that I don't completely believe that as a storyteller in the same way that I felt that way in Joker or, or in The Lighthouse. But, uh, but it's an incredibly charmingly uh, shot movie. Warm skin tones, old school lighting techniques, older and newer lenses, um, really seamlessly matched uh, with lighting and filtering choices, you know, w really worked as a whole, the mix of the old and the new. Old school lighting choices, big old 18 KHMIs, which aren't super old school, but in terms of big, huge lights in this day of video production, Maxi Brutes, uh, these are very much Robert Richardson size lights and and uh but he he said um compared to what he does nowadays he totally overlit this movie which is really interesting because he's a big light guy he uses big lights I, i've worked with gaffers of his over the years and when i've worked at locations he's worked in and i've thrown my setup at them they they smile and i'm like what and, and they'll say well when i was here with bobby richardson he had like an 18k on each three foot wide window and you know i'm a tv person and i have different budgetary considerations for the most part <laughs> aside from anything but um without a doubt the bigness of his lighting is a wonderful device in his storytelling his movies are beautiful I, I i admire his work a lot and um this is a movie where you really i think do see his work even more so than in others because they with their consciousness of of making it approach the period uh they really did create the look on the set it was really about shooting the film. The dailies, for all that they were presented digitally to people, they were created off of film. And, and Quentin Tarantino works off of, a, of, off of a work print. And the color said that the look of the film particularly is really helped by the print stock they used. They used an older print stock, which allowed them to give it more of an appearance of saturation. Really interesting technically, more, much more so than one would think in looking at it, because it's just such a lark of a movie in so many ways. So. Now, when you said that Richardson commented he thought he, he overlit, does that mean in the sense that he ended up somehow using some other aspect of the filming process, dialing back his lighting? Or is there some aspect of the film that when you watch it, you say, oh yeah, that's probably more light than they need? Well, I don't know. Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, you can really pop stuff and then take the levels down with neutral density filters, you know, or scrims in your lights. I think, it, I think it was really more talking about the size of the lights and the scope of what they tried to carry. It, you know, it, it sounds like, I mean, they had big sets on this movie. There weren't a lot of small, intimate rooms, as I recall. This was the first of the movies of the bunch that I, hmm. I saw, so it was a couple months ago. But with that, I think he's talking about size and scope. And for a guy who uses such big lights, it makes me think, wow, really big. You know, so I think he was doing a movie about movie stars, about a golden age, and I think he took that to heart. You know, it wasn't about, it wasn't like, a, you know, a Pulp Fiction diner, which, you know, is classic looking for sure and has big, no doubt, huge, big lights outside those windows. But, but I think he was, I think more than anything, he was talking about honoring a, a, a more traditional Hollywood approach to lighting, making a real Hollywood movie, thinking about where key lights went when you were lighting Betty Davis, let's say, or Raquel Welch, since we're talking about a 60s movie. You know, like Raquel Welch was a woman in the 60s, who, you know, when she was lit, from what I told, she knew where every light was supposed to go. And she would tell a cinematographer who she didn't know and trust, 10K goes there, 5K here, 2K soft light, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, she knew where every light needed to go to make her happy. 
So, uh, so I think there's a way in which he was respecting an old Hollywood sensibility more than, I think that's part of what he was talking about somehow. Anything else about this film that strikes you uh, from the cinema, whether it's a specific scene or a general approach? I enjoyed the movie. I thought it worked really well. Um, it's very much a Quentin Tarantino movie. Um, I see it as very much a piece of work in his continuum. It didn't particularly strike out to me, you know, in, as opposed to some of his other movies. I enjoyed it. I thought Brad Pitt was wonderful. And again, it, I, I, I try my best when I'm watching movies, and I only saw this one once. It's really about taking in the story and... I, I know when I go to a movie lit by any of these guys, I'm going to like the way it looks. I, I don't think with any of them that I'm going to go in and, uh, and get bumped by lighting particularly or spend a lot of time second guessing it. I'm generally going to enjoy their choices. And I think they're generally people who are true to the story they're telling. And, and that's the primary job of a cinematographer. That's one of the things Robert Richardson spoke about, which I thought was the most interesting is, is, that we are there cinematographers on a movie set uh, to honor the director and that vision that a director puts forth and to understand and, and help further and contribute to it, no doubt. I, I can't imagine someone of any of these gentlemen or, you know, or women of high prominence, their stature, won't open their mouth with a suggestion or with a thought, especially in pre-production. But I think that all of these uh, cinematographers uh, showed great respect to the desires and vision of the script and the writer and the director. Well, what about films that didn't make this list that might have caught your eye this year? I'm so bad about with all this, but but one that definitely sticks out to me. I I, I just loved the movie was Jojo Rabbit. I felt as if uh, there wasn't a thing in that movie that I didn't like. And it's a beautiful, poppy, to me, I would call it a formerly key-lit movie, that warm patina with a celebration of, of, of contrast colors. There's a lot of uh, that orange-green thing that goes on in this movie, too, for me. I'm endlessly impressed by the fact that the director was also one of the primary actors in the movie, which always tells me that a cinematographer had an especially important role in the creation of the film. Um, having worked on movies where the director's acting in the movies. It's really fun, for the most part, for a camera department to be part of a movie like that. Because In this day and age, um, there's usually playback, of course. But with that, to get to report and get to actually talk to someone about what they were part of on in, in the frame, it's, it's really interesting and really fun and really brings you to the top of your professional game and your communications game. Uh, so without a doubt, that movie to me spoke very strongly about incredibly strong cinematographer contribution, plus just a great movie. I also wanted to ask you about Parasite, a film I really enjoyed mm. the first time I saw it. And the second time I saw it, I still enjoyed it. But that time I noticed a lot more shot choices, um, overhead shots for very short periods of time, um, the way things were cut together that it surprised me that it wasn't being recognized for cinematography. Mm. It's being well-recognized overall for a foreign language film. I think it's got a lot of momentum in a lot of other categories. But when you saw it, what were your thoughts on the cinematography as it applied to the story they were telling? I, I would have brought that one up with Jojo Rabbit too. That one I saw even earlier. That was, that was the first of the Oscar nominees that I saw. And I, I love the movie. Incredibly strong movie from a cinematography point of view. Beautiful color palette. 
fantastic shots, uh, great use of close-up, incredible use of wide shots though too. The scope of the movie is fantastic. Shooting something that's got real, it's the funniest of the movies we're discussing as well. For all that it's really a movie about class warfare, there's, uh, to me, there's an incredibly funny side to it and the performances, it's a very arch movie. And within shooting comedy, it has different needs. And I think they were respected really intelligently within the telling of what's ultimately a very political and, again, economic tale. There was room for laughter within it. And I, I really respect that. I love that type of you know, paradox. And, uh, and it explored it very beautifully and, and as a whole, just fantastic filmmaking. Another, one, another film I think of that uh, uh, is actually less represented in the Oscars today is Us the Jordan Peele film. Did yeah. you see that? What did you think of the cinematography on that? So, uh, really good. Uh, again, a, a really, I, I enjoyed the movie a lot. Again, I, I, I enjoyed the performances. Having come from, uh, I've shot some darker stuff and uh, I admired the way in which suspense was built, um, which is uh, both directorial and editorial, I think, in many ways. But uh, the cinematography gave a complete and utter atmosphere of suspense and danger and a highly, highly respectable movie and beautifully shot. Thanks for remembering that one. So Ted, I would ask you, do you think this has been a particularly strong year for cinematography or do you think that any year with these cinematographers working that five movies really isn't enough to capture the art that's being done in this space? I think it's unfortunate there are only five movies. I, I also think it's unfortunate that I'm, all of these are amazing choices. And again, each of them, because it's, a, it's, it's an aesthetic and technical pursuit cinematography, all of these tackled uh, technical problems as well as aesthetic problems beautifully. But in this age of seeking diversity within our, our industry and in the world in general, it's unfortunate that there isn't more diversity reflected within this. And that's not really, that's partially the limitation of five movies. And again, all of these tackled amazing technical challenges and did them well. And I'm hard pressed to think of a movie which I would have chosen over these movies to replace them with. But I think as a whole, I'm glad to say that within this list of movies, there are almost all movies that took risks and did not play it safe. And we're in an age in movie making where so many people play it safe. I admire all these nominations and nominees for what's really fine and individualized work. Well, Todd, I really appreciate you sharing your insights on this from behind the camera. And uh, thanks so much for being here on the show. Skid, as always, a pleasure. This was fun. Listeners, please share your feedback. You can email skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline1word.biz. That's B-I-Z. If you're an iTunes user, please rate us. And if so inclined, leave a comment. It really helps us reach new listeners. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. Finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. We've got one more nominee episode to go, so join us again soon.